Let's come to study the word of the Lord today. We are continuing in our series on Samuel, the Samuel story. In fact, we are in the first book of Samuel, and today we're going to be looking at chapters four and five. This is part three of our series. And so if you would, open to 1 Samuel chapter four and open your heart to the Lord as we pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your everlasting word. We thank you for your scriptures, which were given to illuminate truth for us. We thank you for the lives of the real people that are recorded in it and the ways in which you worked with them, that by studying those things and even listening to your spirit today, we may understand more about who you are, about who you've made us to be, about what you want us to do, about how to live our lives in the light and the hope of your truth. And for any among us today, Lord, that are particularly suffering or particularly struggling or particularly in need of a fresh word from you today, I pray that this message would be manna to them. I pray that you, Lord, would reach out to each one of us with your will and purpose and that we would be willing and able, open and ready to hear and receive, believe, and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the high school football hero who injures himself in the first semester of his promising college career and is never able to play football again. It's the former model who every day she looks in the mirror sees more and more wrinkles and fewer and fewer reminders of the face that she used to know. It's the person who rose to the upper echelon of every advancement available in their career only to find themselves suddenly over 50 and laid off and no longer the hot new commodity in the workforce and wondering what remains from it. It's the parent whose child moves out all the kids are gone and the proverbial empty nest remains. It's the person who's lost a spouse or a parent or experienced the death of a child. It's the person who suddenly begins to experience increasing chronic pain and goes to the doctor and gets the diagnosis of an incurable and degenerative disease. And in each instance, and so many more, they might feel as though the light has gone out of their life, as though the hope has gone out of their heart. And if they knew enough of the scripture to know it, they might say, Ichabod, a Hebrew word, a Hebrew name that means the glory is gone. The glory has departed. May I hit closer to home? It's the person who remembers coming into this sanctuary and seeing it packed to the rear walls and sensing an enthusiasm flowing among the crowd and might come today or next week and look around at empty seats and say, the glory has departed. It's the person who might walk on the streets in the city outside of us or go to MacArthur Park or Echo Park and look at the ravages of our city in these recent years and say, the glory is gone. I made a mistake. I know that shocks you. I know that you think that rarely ever happens. Hazel's laughing. I think maybe a mistake isn't the right way to put it, but I wish I would have given a better title to today's message than The Glory Departed, even though that is what it's about, The Glory Departed. Another title that I considered for it, Thus Far the Lord Has Helped Us. And that's because in these two chapters that we're going to be looking at, in the first chapter, both of those notions show up. The stone of Ebenezer is described in the opening verses of the chapter. And if you're wondering where I'm going with this, just stick with me, because the title that I really think I should have given is one that involves waiting. And you're not surprised about that. It's the year of patience after all. The stone of Ebenezer means the stone of help. And 
when it is named, not actually in this chapter, although it's referenced, but in a few chapters from now, in a message that's coming subsequent to this one, we will hear how Samuel himself gives the name to that stone as a boundary line, and he says, the Lord has helped us thus far. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. But by the end of chapter 4, Ichabod is the cry of the people. Ichabod is the name given in the death throes of a probably breach birth to a child who is born on the very day when the high priests of Israel all die and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and the troops of the people are defeated and a dying mother says, Ichabod, the glory has departed. So those two ideas, they're embedded in this section of scripture that God has helped us to this point, but suddenly at this point, it seems like God's glory is gone. But I think the title that I ought to have given, and maybe retroactively I still can, is this, the weight of God's glory. Will you say that phrase? The weight of God's glory. How do you spell weight? How do you spell weight? Is it W-E-I-G-H-T or is it W-A-I-T? I want both of them. Maybe that was the benefit of giving the title this way. You don't have it in print, you don't know, because I want both. In fact, in Hebrew, the term for glory, Chabad, is heavy. It's weighty. God's glory is his strength, his mass, if you will. Not in a physical sense, of course, but using that in a, in a metaphor for the spiritual sense of God's presence being an imprint wherever he is, the weight of God's glory, like the weight of gold on the scale. The heavier it is, the more it's worth, and God's weight his glory outweighs all the mass and matter of the universe because the creator is greater even than all of his glorious creation. And it is his presence that gives glory, that shines light into all that he has made. But the reason why I want to spell it also W-A-I-T is because this section of scripture Chapters 4 and 5 of the book of 1 Samuel shows that the people must learn more about God's glory and crave more of his presence by waiting for his return. Because in fact, what the whole story will essentially teach us is though the people think that God has left them, what God is showing them through all of these crises is that it is they who have turned away from God. So sometimes in those situations I'm talking about, where there's a loss, where there's a decline, where there's an unexpected crisis, and we say, where is God gone? The glory has departed. Sometimes the story is that God is saying, I want you to see me in the middle of your lack. I want you to find me in the middle of your crisis. I want you to turn to me. Some of those examples that I gave, in fact, many of them were examples of people who, in fact, what the Lord may be trying to say to them is, you've been getting your glory from the wrong God, lowercase g. And in some instances, that is said to people who think they know God, but have engaged in a form of godliness, denying the real power of God to be ruler of their life. And in other instances, it's people who don't care about God, but are interested in the things of glory that they believe will make their life worth living. And what God is trying to show them is, I'm the only glory worth getting. I'm the greatest treasure. In fact, in this section of scripture, once again, we're going to see a focus first on the people of Israel in a kind of crisis that's familiar to you and I, uh, folks from PCF, 
because of our study in the book of Judges last year. We remember the Judges cycle. When the people focused on the Lord, God was there to defend them. But when people in Israel turned away from God or began to intermingle in their worship, the kind of idolatry that was typical of the people around them, then they fell victim to, subject to the cruelty and oppression of the enemies around them. And very often they probably felt that the glory of God had departed. Even though the ark was still in Israel, the power of God was not at work in their troops and in their lands. And so what would God do? He would raise up a warrior. He would raise up a leader, a judge to deliver the people. He would anoint that judge with his spirit, with his glory. He would put the weight of the mantle of his presence by his spirit on that person. People like Deborah, the prophetess, or Gideon, the judge, and he would deliver Israel through his presence in those people faithful, attentive servants to the Lord. Now, at this time, he's raising up Samuel. And in fact, when we come to this passage, we are coming to the era in which Samuel is entering into his adulthood, entering into the fullness of his primary leadership in Israel for a period. But we're also coming to a cataclysmic crisis. We've already seen in previous study in this book in the, in the last few weeks how the, the priests, even the very priests that were training Samuel, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had this form of godliness. What do I mean by that? They were involved in the ritual. They were aware of the scriptures. They were living in the tabernacle. But particularly in the case of Eli's sons, they had embraced wickedness. They were interested in getting what they could squeeze out of their position as priests by squeezing the people, but they were not dedicated to God. They were not fearful of the Lord. And even Eli, who had some greater measure of holiness than that, we might say, nevertheless had become complacent with the idea that these new kids, this new generation, was beyond his capacity to correct. And so he simply turned a blind eye to them and in doing so fell into literal blindness himself becoming an ineffective old man, not because age is necessarily so diminishing, but because he had diminished in his faith. And so for him, the glory had departed. But for Samuel, there was always the awareness, God has helped us this far. I remember in a particular point of crisis in my life, I won't take the time to go into the details, it would only serve to make it more personal to me and less applicable to you. We all have our points of crisis. We all have times where we've experienced some kind of extraordinary failure or breach of a relationship or some kind of loss that we may feel even guilty about ourselves or feel like this is something I keep having this problem or I keep making this mistake or I, I keep struggling with this and we may feel like God must want to just turn his back on me because Lord knows I want to turn my back on myself. And I remember talking to a friend and saying, you know, I've, I've, I just feel like I don't deserve forgiveness from God about this or I don't deserve patience from God about this because I keep failing. And I remember the friend saying to me, you know, the Lord has helped you in the past and I believe the Lord will help you again. And they were right. He did. To say Ebenezer, to say this is a mark of how all through the days leading up to this point, God has been there, reliable. This, this is a foundation. I liked what Sister Magoo prayed for me. Thank you about praying that, that there would be a firmness and a, a, a rootedness to what is preached today. And I thought, yes, that's Ebenezer. That's the cornerstone. It's God's word. It's God's testimony. And we stand on it and we say, you know what? Everything may be shaking around me and it may not be clear what's in front of me, but I know that I'm standing on the witness and testimony. God has helped before and he will help again. God is our refuge and help. And he's very present in time of need and trouble. But there are times where something that we thought was so essential 
is taken away from us. It can be a job, a position. It can be a certain status in life. I remember I was part of a Bible study group that met weekly that was so powerful in my life. It was such an extraordinary event for me to be a part of that home group gathering every Friday night in the years that it went on, and it went on for years, and it was a formative time in my life, and I would go to that prayer meeting. I would get incredible teaching from the Word. We would pray together. We would worship together. We would take communion together. The Lord did powerful works of healing. There would be prophetic words shared. It was just a dynamic, powerful, glorious time, and then... Something happened, and it's unfortunate. It often happens among the people of God, unfortunately. There was a problem among certain people in the group, and that problem continued to create issues among them until it got to the place where certain people didn't want to come anymore, and the person who had been hosting said, I don't want to host anymore, and the glory departed, it seemed to me. And I remember talking to my father about it at the time, and I was saying, I just don't understand how this could be within God's will. Why would he allow this? It was such a great gathering. And these people, they love the Lord, and I love them. And it, it broke my heart to see division between them. And it broke my heart to, to know that, that there wasn't going to be a continuance of that gathering. And even though the gathering actually did continue a little while later in a very similar but distinctly different way in a slightly different place, it was never the same. It was its own glory. But that time of that group and that gathering, it never came back. And I remember saying to my dad, I just don't understand how this could possibly be within God's will. And I don't remember his exact words to me, but it was something along the lines of saying, you know, this has happened and it's beyond your control, but God isn't beyond your appeal. So just trust in him. And just keep doing what he tells you to do. And just keep showing love and grace to the people that he's given you in your life. And just keep trusting him. And that might sound like insufficient advice, but I'll tell you, it's actually a world of wisdom right there. You and I aren't always going to understand, and there are times where it seems to us that God allows something to happen. And of course, the greatest loss that any of us can experience is the loss of a person. When someone we love dies, especially if it's unexpected, but even if it isn't unanticipated, it is maybe the ultimate experience for us emotionally, certainly, of a sense that light has gone out of life or that the glory has departed. And we may feel as though no matter how much we want to call on God, we are trapped in the fortress of death, the place of darkness. In chapter 5 that we're going to look at, I bring particular focus to two of the five Philistine cities. You see, in this section of Scripture, the Israelites are at odds with those people known as the Philistines. Probably familiar terminology to us from the Bible for any of us who uh, have read it to any great degree in the Old Testament. The Philistines were part of a group of people that are known in uh, archaeological scholarship as the Sea Peoples. They are probably part of that group. That is the, the, the common thinking. This was a group of people who came somewhere from the central or eastern Mediterranean in the late Bronze Age era in which these, uh, these records are occurring. They came uh, perhaps from Crete to what we know today as Israel, to the ancient Near East, and particularly they established themselves powerfully in coastal cities, like Ashdod and Gath. Ashdod is about uh, uh, 40 or 50 miles, I believe, uh, from, uh, from um, Shiloh, the tabernacle spot that we've been talking about. These were militaristically uh, advanced peoples. They had uh, chariots, uh, metal chariots. They had uh, more um, developed weaponry. It, it was not surprising that they should be able to best the uh, Israelite people, who were not really a warfaring nation at that point, uh, just a, a group of tribes, mainly of farmers and ranchers and agricultural people. In fact, the real miracle, the real glory of God in this, in this challenge, this crisis between the Philistines and the Israelites is that the Israelites survived at all. 
Probably part of it is because the Philistines were so dependent on their chariots and the, and the Israelites were well ensconced in the hill countries where chariots don't serve you very well. And so the Philistines tended to dominate on that coastal plain, the Gaza Strip and so forth. But in the hills, the Israelites were able to maintain their hold. And in the buffer areas in between, there were constant skirmishes and frictions. And that's what's going on in this period. And uh, as the Philistines achieve military victory over Israel in chapter 4, Israel says, God's given up on us. And in effect, they give up on God. The Philistines grab hold of the Ark of the Covenant. I suppose I also could have given the title today to our message, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in fact, if you haven't seen the movie, what, it's what, 45 years now since it came or whatever? So if I have to give you a spoiler alert, I just think that's sad, but I'm giving you the spoiler alert right now. I'm going to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here's the spoiler. The Nazis lose. And if you don't know that much, God help our educational system. But in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that Ark of the Covenant, that chest that held the covenant tablets that Moses had brought down from the mountain that had the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the words of God that give life and light to his people about how to live together and serve him. That was in that sacred chest that was watched over by the, the, the wings, the, the touching wings of the cherubim, fiery angelic beings who were perceived as in creating with this, this uh, covering of their wings a seat, a throne for God. So of course the Philistines say, we're going to steal that throne of their God because what better way to show that we are more glorious than Yahweh? What better way to show that we are greater, we Philistines and our God, Dagon, than this, this group of, of farmers and ranchers, these Israelites and their God, the I Am. We will grab his throne and in doing so, we will supplant him. And the Israelites, when they see the success of the Philistines in doing so, say the glory has departed, God has left us. But what the Philistines are going to find is very similar to what the Nazis find at the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is you better be careful when you try and lay your hand on God because the glory of God cannot be manipulated by human hands. And the power of God will break out from that place. The power of God emanates from his presence. And where evil is found, evil is smited by the power of God. Let's look at these passages. As we do so, I urge you to remember, this is not just about the story of something happening 12 or 1300 years ago. It's the story of how you and I interact with the power and presence of God today because everybody is in this story. No matter how you respond to God, whether you believe in him or not, whether you revere him or not, whether you worship him or not, there's a model in here for you and I of how people behave in response to God. Now, remember that the last chapter that we looked at, chapter 3, was one in which the little boy Samuel learned to hear from the Lord. As a little child, God came to him, called to him, and then gave him a difficult word. And the word of the Lord was to Eli and to his sons and thereby to all Israel. And it confirmed a word that God had given by a prophet in the chapter previous. If you haven't heard these prior messages, you can go back and listen to them online. Or you can simply read 1 Samuel, the first uh, three chapters, and you will see this uh, laid out, that God again and again said, because these people who are supposedly my leaders and my priests are misleading the people and are doing wrong in my name, wrong will come on them. In other words, it's going to come back on their heads. And in fact, the sign that what I'm saying is true, which is that all Israel is going to be disciplined. God is going to give a kind of a spanking to his people to bring them back in line. And the sign that that's true is that both Hophni and Phinehas, these relatively young men, sons of Eli, inheritors of the priesthood, will die in their prime on the same day. And it in fact will continue that way, a legacy of decline and death in the lifeline of Eli until that entire line of priests is wiped out. 
And then we are told that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Though this is generally put as the first verse of chapter 4, it could also be seen as the last verse of chapter 3. It's really the hinge point at which we are told that Samuel is now going to be the judge and leader of this nation. Now, in this era, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle. And as you know from what I've just said, this is just kind of what goes on in their days. It is just part of the strife and the turmoil. Well, we live in a world of war still to this day. And though we may not be as close to it as the Israelites were to the Philistines, we oughtn't to think we're too far away from it either. And so in the middle of this battle, they camp at a place called Ebenezer, which, as I mentioned, means stone of help. And in a subsequent time, we'll see how it got its name. It probably didn't have that name at this point. It probably only gets the name later, but this is given to us retroactively with the assumption that we know where this is. And contemporary readers of the scripture for generations would know where that place was because it was an important symbol of saying God helps us. And this is a reminder of two things. One, God has helped us in the past and he'll help us again if we rely on him. But also two, remember if we turn away from him, then the glory departs from us. The Philistines were encamped in a place called Aphek. I'm going to do this with each of the place names pretty much that are mentioned in the text. I'm going to call out to you what the names mean because the fact that these events happen at these places and that the places have names with meanings helps us to understand the meaning of the events as they're happening. Did you follow me? In other words, the name of the place matters. And so I want to call it out to you because since you and I don't speak Hebrew, we might not notice it. And we don't speak Philistine for that matter either, whatever that may have been. I want us to see. They are encamped at a place that's called fortress. That's their strength. That's their glory. Their glory is we've got the tools. We've got the weapons. We've got the technology and the know-how and the manpower. That's our glory. But Israel is encamped at God is our help. And that's supposed to be the distinction. That's why God has carved out a people for himself. Because the whole world is like the Philistines. The whole world wants to operate on the basis of its physical prowess and its intellectual genius and its physical beauty and its worldly wealth. That is the way of the world. That is the way of the flesh. That's the way of the enemy. But the way of the people of God is to be founded on the stone of his presence, on the foundation of his word, on faith in his help. And they are still doing that, but here it's just a name. It's like the way that Hophni and Phinehas were serving the Lord, going through the ceremonies, but not seeking God's face. Going through the rituals, knowing the names, knowing the order of the words, the way that somebody could pray through a rosary and have no personal experience of Jesus. I'm not saying that anybody that prays a rosary doesn't have a personal experience of Jesus. What I'm saying is religious ritual is not God's glory. And if that's where we are looking for God's present help, we are actually making an idol of God. And that's what they were doing. So when the Philistines enter into battle, Israel is defeated. 4,000 men die on the battlefield. And the people come into the camp and the elders say this, not why has the, have the Philistines defeated us. In fact, they wouldn't be surprised that the Philistines won. Why have they defeated us? They've got more men than us. They've got more firepower than us. They've got chariots we don't have. No, what they're saying is, why did God abandon us? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the enemies? Why has God shamed us in front of our enemies? Did you ever have a moment where you were misbehaving in front of your mom and your friends were there and she just laid into you or your dad disciplined you right in front of your friends and you think, oh, don't do it in front of my friends. And the parent says, yeah, I'm going to do it because you were disrespecting in front of them. So you're going to be disciplined in front of them. And that's actually a loving parent. I'm not talking about any kind of abusive discipline. I'm talking about righteous discipline. Let me ask you something. Is there such a thing as a good parent who doesn't discipline their children? Can you be a good parent and not discipline your children? It's not possible. 
Discipline is an essential element of good parenting. Quite frankly, one of the reasons why we have a lot of rotten people in our world is because we've had a lot of rotten parents who've tried to be best friends with their kids without disciplining them. I'm not saying you shouldn't be friendly with your children. I'm saying you're not a good parent if you don't discipline. And you know what? Many parents don't really want their children to be the best that they could be. What they want is for their children to make them feel good. I want the love of my children. I want them to like me. I want them to think I'm cool. Is that what's in their best interest? It may or may not happen. It's not going to be consistent. At some point, your children will look at you and say, the glory has departed, old man. And you can just respond with a twinkle in the eye and say, I know more about that than you do. It is essential to discipline in love, not in anger, not in abusive manner, but with a righteous dedication to seeing that child brought up in the right way. What God is doing here is disciplining his people. He's saying, you know what? You've turned away from me. I'm going to show you the result now before you get further down the line. So this is the way that the elders responded. These are the leaders. Instead of saying, we need to repent. You know, this has happened before. Do you remember in the book of Judges? Do you remember in the book of Joshua? When this kind of thing would happen, what would the leader say? The righteous leader that was anointed by God. Almost always, what that leader would say is, first of all, repent. Remember Gideon had to tear down the altars in his own father's household before he could go and have the victory? And so what they would say is, come back to God, return to the Lord with all your heart, which is something Samuel's going to say later on down the line. But these leaders at this time, prior to Samuel entering into the fullness of his leadership, there are still local leaders who aggregate together and say, well, the way to deal with this is not for us to repent, but for us to lay hold of God. They've objectified God. They've thingified God. I hate to put this on indie on Indiana Jones, but it ain't about the ark. It's about the God who sits on the ark. But just like those people in the movie think, if we have the ark, we'll have the power. That's the way God's own people are acting in this. If we have the ark, we have the power. It's a name it and claim it kind of faith that says, if I know the right verse to claim, if I know the right way to pray, if I cry enough on the worship a platform before the Lord. I'm not saying anybody shouldn't know the word or shouldn't cry. What I'm saying is beware that you and I would ever suppose that there's some mechanism by which we can force God to favor our will and give us the victory that we want. So they say, bring the ark down here. When we have the ark close, then we'll have the power close and we'll have victory what they should have been doing was to come close themselves to God. So the people send to Shiloh. They carry the ark down. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are the ones that are carrying it. That's how you know that this isn't a righteous motive because those guys aren't righteous guys. They want to preserve and protect their privileged position. They want to force God into a corner Hey, you better do what you said you would do. What kind of God are you if you don't hold true to this? And he's going to show them, I'm the kind of God you call Ichabod. So they bring it into the camp. All Israel is shouting. Everybody's excited. And the Philistines hear the noise and they get scared. What's this great shout? Here's something that keeps coming back in the story. People hearing things and going, what is that? Now, why is that important? Because it takes us right back to Samuel as a little boy, hearing something and saying, what is that? What is that? And it's God. Throughout the story, people are hearing, but not understanding. Remember Isaiah? You hear, but you don't understand. You see, but you don't know. I'm telling it to you, but you don't believe. And that gets reiterated over and over in the text. So they hear the shout. They don't know what it means. Then they, then they realize, oh, they have their ark. And they're afraid. God has come into the camp. You see, the Philistines have more reverence for God than the Israelites do. Because the Israelites are focused on the ark, but the Philistines are afraid of God. Woe to us. Nothing like this has ever happened before. 
Who's going to deliver us from the hand of this God? Why? Because they know Ebenezer. They know what God has done. This is the God who overcame Egypt. Now, the Philistines may think they're all that, but they know they're not Egypt. This is in Egypt's heyday still. If these people could overcome Pharaoh with that ark and that God, then what hope do we have? You see, they know the testimony of the Lord, and they're impressed by it. In fact, the Exodus story gets reiterated also in this text over and over. A reminder to us that there is no one that this God cannot conquer. In other words, the text is making clear to us, God did not fail. And even the Philistines were afraid of him. The failure was of the people to believe in the Lord. They maintained their religious ritual, but they lost their faith in the covenant. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. The slaughter was very great. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel die that day. Remember the prior battle, 4,000? It's exponentially worse. They've doubled down on their defeat because they continue to thingify and objectify their religion and neglect their relationship with God. But here is the sign, the very sign the Lord twice prophesied in preceding chapters. Both Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, die in the battle that day. Israel is saying, why God, why? Why have you done this to us? Why have you allowed this? Why would you betray us? And it brought to my mind a proverb that I like the New Living Translation of it. It's Proverb 19.3. There are some people who ruin their own lives and then blame it all on God. They make every choice that God says don't make. And then when things go wrong, they say, why God? Or that's, see, I don't believe in God because if a real good God wouldn't do this. But they don't look at what they themselves have done. They objectify and thingify God. They vilify God and ignore. They're blind to their own contributing behaviors. They are blind to the reality that what God is doing is pulling back the veil on consequences. He's saying actions have consequences. He's saying that part of the glory of what God has given to us, the ability to bless, carries with it the corollary. You can also curse. And since I've given you this great opportunity to participate with me, says the Lord, in building life and blessing it, I've also had to hand to you the reins of power of free will that enables you to bring a curse on yourself. But God's word says, don't curse, but bless. And here's how to bless and be blessed. Here's how to live and thrive. But if you turn away from me, you will die. And so what God is saying is, I told you so. You and I, as believers, must resist the temptation to blame God for our failures. If you have a real beef with God, and I mean this sincerely, if there is somewhere where you feel really hurt and you say, I blame God for that. Somebody dear in my life that I loved and God took them from me. Some opportunity and God shut the door. Somebody abusive and horrible to me and God allowed it. And you say, I don't understand. Or there's something in you maybe. Why, you know, why'd you give me this disposition? Why do I have this attitude? Why am I always this way? You made me. Why'd you make me that way? Why'd you make me such a depressive sort if I'm not supposed to be depressed? Why'd you make me so easily angered? Why am I so prone to lust? You made me. And so we could blame God and pretend that it's prayer. If you're in that place, I simply want to say this. The solution is not to deny it, hide it and bury it, try and pretty it up and powder it and put a nice face on it. But instead, do the thing that the Lord again and again says, come and bow down before me and give that to me. Be honest with me about that. But remember, I'm God. You're not. I'm good. Always. You're not always good. Is there anyone among us who's really prepared to deny that? Enough with the, well, I'm good enough and I'm good most of the time. I'm saying always. Always. 
perfectly good. Well, God isn't always perfectly good either. Yes, he is. And if you can't bow at that stone, you can't get his help. Not because he doesn't want to help you, but because you're unwilling to receive it. You're trying to make God into something he's not. He is always good. You and I might not always understand it. We may not even like it, but that's who he is. And any worship that isn't founded on that is nothing other than idolatry. You say, but I don't feel it. I'm hurting. Then come to him with that and find his help. Because friend, he cares that you are hurting and it's not his fault. He wants to help. Stop trying to punish him. You're only punishing yourself. He wants to make you free. And if he allows something of a challenge or a loss along the way to help you find him, count it as joy because the glory of God is there. Israel hadn't learned that yet. They're in the middle of the lesson. Now notice this, a man from Benjamin runs from the battle. Why does it matter that he's from Benjamin? Here's a little spoiler for you again. The first king of Israel will be from the tribe of Benjamin. You might say, well, why why do they call the tribe Benjamin? Hey, have I got a PSOM class for you? There were 12 sons of Israel. The very youngest one was named Benjamin. He was actually originally named Ben-Oni. Why? Because his mother died in his birth, just like the woman at the end of this chapter. And instead of saying the glory has departed, she simply said, this is the son of my sorrow. She was a woman like Hannah who always wanted children, but like Hannah was challenged in it. But she bore two sons. One was named Joseph and the other was named Benjamin. And when she gave birth to Benjamin, on the way to Bethlehem, by the way, she died. And she named her son, son of my sorrow. But her husband, in his grief, having lost the woman that he loved the most in the birthing of a child that he loved the most. Sad to say, he shouldn't have favorites, but he did. In the midst of the moment when he might have said, the glory has departed, he said, this is the son of my strength. And he changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. I'll tell you this, the name means Christ. Because the man of sorrows acquainted with sin is the one who through his death gave life and birth to us. So it means something that it's a man from Benjamin who comes to give the message to Eli. But the message is the son of sorrow message. He says, we've lost. There's been a defeat. Now Eli was sitting by the road. There were benches, stone benches by the city gates at this time in the ancient Near East. We know from the archeology span reports that these benches have been found. They didn't have any back. They were just like a seat. He was sitting on that. He's an old fat man. That's what the text says. And I'm sorry to put it to you that way, but that's the case of it. And his heart was trembling for the ark of God. In other words, he was afraid because he knew we have not been walking righteously before the Lord, and it may very well be that we lose the ark today. And so the man came and cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry from the city, everybody in the city weeping and wailing because this man from the battle is saying, we've lost the ark. He hears it and says, what is that? He's deaf. He's hearing, but he's not understanding. So the man came to Eli. Eli's 98 years old. He's blind. He can't see. Even when he hears, he doesn't know what it's saying. And the man gives him the news. Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great slaughter. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. He saves the worst news for the end. The death of the sons, the loss of the ark. And the moment that the ark is mentioned, Eli falls over backwards and breaks his neck. So he dies, for he was old and heavy. Now, I mentioned to you that the Hebrew word for glory, chavad, means also heavy. And in fact, the, the, uh, the straightforward Hebrew term for heavy here, chavad, is slightly different, but there's a parallel being shown here. The glorious weight of God's presence is not being felt in Israel. All that remains is the gross corpulence of fatness of the flesh. 
Remember how the, the priests were, uh, we were told that they would stick their fork into the, into the pot as the uh, sacrificial meat was being prepared, and they would take of the fatty meat. You know, in ancient times, people didn't get a lot of fat, and people weren't afraid of eating fat. They needed it. Fat is actually really essential to people who don't have a steady food supply. It's a protective measure to be able to keep yourself sturdy and strong. And in fact, in ancient times, people who were very heavy were often seen as people who were favored. They were wealthy. They had enough to eat and then some. And, uh, and so we might read this story and think it's being pejorative about Eli, but actually what it's saying is the person who looked like he had it best the person who seemed to have the most, the person who was sitting in the seat of glory fell on his butt backwards into death because all of that weight was absent God's glory. He had a form of godliness but had denied its power. About this time, there's a woman who is in fact the wife of one of Eli's husbands. It's his daughter-in-law, and she's about to give birth to his grandchild. And she goes into labor at this point, a, a, a probably premature labor, close to term, but probably too soon. Perhaps it is uh, exacerbated by her emotional response to everything that is going on, the death of her husband, the death of her father-in-law, the failure of the nation the enemies that are now going to uh, dominate them. And the women around her are saying, don't be afraid. You're actually, you're okay. You're giving birth. You made it through and the child's alive. But she doesn't answer or pay any attention. Instead, she simply does one thing. Like Rachel later on, she names the boy, but she names him no glory. Glory departed, inglorious. Actually, the Hebrew scholar, scholar Robert Alter suggests that the best translation of this would be rather than the glory has departed, the glory is exiled. And I think that is actually a very good reading, not only of the text, but of the theme. Because what's really happening here is a kind of a preview, a prophetic microcosm of the exile that will occur later. And that exile in which, once again, the people of Israel are disciplined, becomes a model for you and I today to remember that God is not beholden to us because we call ourselves Christians, but rather, if we turn away from God, we can expect that there's a disciplining kind of exile that opens up in our lives until we are ready to return to the Lord with all of our heart. At the end of this chapter, the verse basically repeats. I didn't put them both there because I wanted to save some space on the screen. But verse 21 that says, the glory is departed, the ark of God is taken, there's death in the house of the priesthood. It's repeated. And whenever you see something duplicated like that in the Hebrew text, it's a way of underscoring it, underlining it, saying, look at this, this demands your attention. I want to call back in the remainder of the message which is only a few minutes longer, some of the things that we've already seen in this story because we are supposed to be carrying these points along. We want to keep applying them because what's been laid down previously is still applicable presently. When the Lord said that this would happen, we took this lesson from it, that God does say thus far and no farther. You know, the stone of help the Lord has helped us thus far. The language of it reminds me of the passage in the Bible that says, God is the one who sets the tides and sets the waves and says, thus far and no farther. We've been told about the detriment that could come from rising tides and rising waves. Let me tell you something. The Lord is the Lord of those things. God is God over all of that. And so there is ultimately a warning from God that says, if you turn away from me long enough, you will experience all the worst results of what that brings about. And what are the worst results? Well, first of all, corrupt leaders will have to answer for their corruption. And people who hurt others are going to have to answer for how they hurt others. And yet there's beyond that because God talks about the ecological effect and an environmental effect and a spiritual effect. Ultimately, what God says is, if you turn away from me, the only thing that remains when my glory departs is the reality of death. Because God is the author of life, and the absence of God in your life is the presence of death. Now, we live in a world of death because we live in a world that's turned away from God. But even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil when we know that the Lord is with us. 
But you might say, well, I've done wrong to others and I've hurt others. I've said that everybody has to give an answer for it. We all have to answer for it. Don't think that one word that you've said, hurtful or harmful to another, or me too, because I've said more than all of you and worse than all of you, I'll say. I'll take a page from Paul and say, I'm the worst sinner on earth. Because when the Lord said, you shall not kill, he also said, when you're angry, it is the same as murder. And when the Lord said, don't commit adultery, he also said, when you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So I'm the worst sinner in the world because I've broken every commandment and not just once, according to that measure. No, I've never taken a human life, but I have spoken the words of death and I have to answer for them. And so do you. And what answer will you give? It could be Ichabod. There's no hope. There's no help. Or it could be Jesus. The one word that means God saves. The very name Jesus is a word for repentance. Not his. He knew no sin. It's the assurance that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is God's glory. You are God's glory. Not because you deserve it, but because he's promised it. So the answer that we give for the wrong that we do is Jesus, but I can't give that answer and keep on doing wrong. I can stumble because I come back. But if I determine to do wrong in my heart and pretend that I can paper that over with Jesus, then unto you, Ichabod. For no one can lay claim to Jesus and keep on seeking evil as a pattern of commitment in their heart. This is what it means when it says that nobody can declare that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit does it. It has to be the heart. Who is it that God is ultimately going to raise up to lead these people? A man after his own heart. And that throne, that's the throne of Jesus. God looks on the heart. You and I, when we come to the table of Jesus, we are supposed to come with our heart. Paul said, if you come with the wrong attitude, even though you're doing the religious ritual, it may become Ichabod to you. Not because God is not present in it, but because if you come with selfishness and self-centeredness, you turn away from God. What about the people that God has come to? I'm going to go quickly through this section. Ashdod, the fortress of strength, actually becomes a place of death. The Philistines take the Ark of God. They bring it from Ebenezer. God's helped us this far to Ashdod. Powerful, strong. You see how they name their cities for what they want to be and what they claim to be? We're the powerful, strong people. A fortified place, a fortress. The root meaning is to devastate, to destroy, to make dead. In other words, their strength is in their ability to kill others. Their strength is in their ability to wipe out others. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and they say, we're the dog that eats the most dog. And that's what makes us strong. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant to that place. That's vainglorious. Their pride is going to go before a fall. The Philistines take the Ark, and they put it in the house of Dagon. This is their Philistine deity. He was... Um, like we are familiar with some of the Egyptian gods, and he's going to have a parallel experience as the Egyptian gods did, a composite figure. His upper uh, body was a human being, a man, but his lower body was like a fish. In fact, the Hebrew word for fish or sea creature, dag, may be part of his name, although that uh, viewpoint has become somewhat disfavored in recent uh, study. But he does have the tail of a fish and the, and the head of a man, and he is seen as their chief deity and they have a, a, a an idol literally a sculpture of him in this temple and they take the ark of God there as though to make the throne of Yahweh the footstool of Dagon do you see how demonic that is and I want to tell you that's going on even to this day the enemy gets into the hearts of people and tries to get God under the foot of the enemy over and over and over again 
but it never really works. And that is because God is not mocked. When the Ashdodites arise early the next morning, guess what? Dagon, raised high above the ark, has fallen down in front of it. The way that he has fallen is prostrate as though he is bowing in worship, in subservience, like a defeated foe, like a, a, a prisoner of war bowing before the conquering king. So they take Dagon and they put him back up. They prop him back up again. They don't look at it and say, maybe there's a sign here that God is saying, if you really want to be a part of my power, you have to come and bow before me and acknowledge who I am. Maybe there was an opportunity for the Philistines here to experience grace, but instead they lift up the face of Dagon again so that the next day, not only has he fallen to the ground, he's been cut into pieces, broken apart. In fact, his fishiness and his humanness have been rent asunder as if for to say, do not do this to my image because what is a man or a woman? In whose image are you made? You are the image of God. In ancient times, people felt that to make an image of a God was to gain control of it. When God made us in his image, what he was saying was, I want you to be my representation on earth. So he has cut down Dagon. The hands cut off on the threshold such that the priests now never walk on the threshold anymore because they don't want a reminder of how their God was humiliated before the one and truly only God of all the earth. Now listen to this. The hand of the Lord was what? Heavy. In other words, Israel is saying, God's glory has departed. But what the Philistines are about to say is, God's glory is on us. Again, it's the end of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. The very thing that they thought was going to be their treasure becomes their demise. Why? Because God is who he is. And what makes the difference for you and I is who are we before him? If you and I are coming with evil in our hearts and evil in our lives and trying to stand in the glory of the Lord, the glory of God is going to be a heavy weight on anyone who tries to do that. But for those who would be willing to wait on the Lord, the weight of God's glory is one in which he will right the wrong. He will level the mountains and fill in the valleys and make things right. He ravages the Philistines and brings on them tumors. Later on, we're going to be told about rats. It's possible that this is literally the plague, that some kind of bubonic plague breaks out among the, not only the Ashdodites, but ultimately among all the Philistines. They say, we can't have this ark with us anymore. Now, isn't this interesting? The people who are supposed to be gods and say, God, we, we want to please you, have actually turned away from him. But they're saying, how do we get God back? And the people that are at enmities with God are the ones that stole his ark and brought it to live with them. But now they say, we don't want God. So I told you that there's, there's, there's um, an example here for all of us. I come back to this passage from 1 Corinthians 11. Don't think that you can get close to God while being at odds with God and have it be a blessing. This is why sometimes people will say, I don't want anything to do with God. But that's not righteous either. Well, if I get too close, I might not be worthy. You're not worthy. But if you would come and bow down before him, then his strength will be made perfect in your weakness because he is a God of grace. But if you and I suppose that we can manipulate him just by leaning on religious traditions, then we are as foolish as those Israelites. And fools ultimately end up having to drink the grapes of wrath. Remember the old battle hymn of the Republic? Maybe you've heard that old song. The Lord is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's actually drawn from a, a, a biblical verse that talks about the grapes of wrath. Think about that. It takes time for grapes to grow. And then when the grapes are grown, they have to be pressed. And then when they are pressed, they give out their juice, what the ancients used to call the blood of the vine. And that blood became a vintage. It sits in the bottle for a time as it ferments until it reaches its prime. Remember the old Orson Welles commercials? Uh, I don't remember what vineyard it was, but he would say, we will drink no wine before it's time. We will drink no wine before it's time. Orson Welles could have played Eli in his later life. He had the right body shape for it and voice. It would have been good. Why did they say that? Because you have to know the right time when the vintage is ready. The Grapes of Wrath is a way of describing God saying, there is coming a moment when you're going to have to drink what you've made to worship. 
When the Israelites in the days of Moses made the golden calves and, and worshiped these cow gods that were similar to the Egyptian gods that they had come away from, that God had defeated, Moses ground up those altars, those idols, those golden figures into a fine powder and they put it into the, the cups to drink and they all had to drink it. Ew. It's God saying, where you worship, that's where you feed. When we come to the table of the Lord, you're eating his body and drinking his blood because he's who you worship. He's who you rely on. But if you rely on an idol, that's what you're going to consume. And you are what you eat. And so the emptiness and death, the wrath that is due to those idols, it becomes the due to everyone who follows them. They bring the ark to the place called Gath, which means wine press. And when they bring it there, the hand of the Lord pressed down on the wine press. And it was death, disease, plague. The hand of God smote them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, which means torn up by the roots. You see what God is doing? He is bringing judgment and ripping up by the roots the wickedness of idolatry in the land around him. And the same thing happens. So they gathered all the leaders of the Philistines from the whole country and they say, you know what? There's no city here that we can keep it in. Send it back to Israel. Let it return to its own place so it won't kill us and our people. Now they've made the same mistake here as the Israelites had. They've thingified God. They're talking about the ark. So now they are actually exiling God from their midst because what they say is all that God means to us is death. But if they would have turned to God, they could have found the author of life. The men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The chapter ends by describing something that is similar to the cry of the people of God in Egypt that went up to the heavens. The Lord is saying, I hear the cries of all people. I hear the cries of all people, but you know how a mother can tell the difference of a cry, a crying baby? Maybe mothers out there will know that. They'll say, oh, that's a hungry cry. That's an angry cry. That's a lonely cry. That's a scared cry. You know what I'm talking about? Because the mother knows her child, and the Lord is like that. He hears the cry of all people, but he knows the difference between an angry cry and a proud cry and a sinful cry and a heartfelt cry of repentance. The people surrounding Israel are going to come to despise this God, not because they don't think he has power, but because he won't play by their rules. But the people of Israel lost their God, so to speak, because they wouldn't play by his rules. So now what God is teaching them is, come back to me with all your heart. The glory has not departed. God has given you an opportunity. And the opportunity is to follow him. But when you follow him, it puts you at odds with the religious legalists and the secular atheists and the wrong religious patterns and pursuits of a world that is in darkness. And it does mean that there will be times where you may look up to the Lord and say, why, God, are you not delivering me out of this? Why, God, if this is true, I want to serve you and I come to you with repentance. But why aren't things going more right in my life? Well, there's two things I would say about that. One is, have you really brought all of that to the Lord and laid it on his altar? And if you have, then do you really believe that no matter what you see going on around you, God is good within you and will see you through to the day of completion. Remember what Jesus said, the world is going to be turned against you if you are turned towards me. They're going to hate you the way they hated me. They'll remember your words the way that they remembered mine. A servant is not greater than their master. Don't be surprised by that, but remember this. Thus far, God has helped us. Not only has he helped you through this life, he has promised you eternity in the next. So that even though you come to the very place of death, 
You and I have passed out of death and into life if we have passed into the body of Christ. Whoever does not love, does not belong to the Lord, is not living in the light, is living in the place of death. The Philistines, for all their power, even having God's ark close to them, were living in the place of death. All that God did was by his glory reveal that to them. But they, even then, didn't repent. They kept going in their own way. And Israel, it had to learn to go God's way. Now, how about you and I? Has the glory departed from our life? Has the goodness of God reached its conclusion in us? I tell you, it need not be so. But anyone who feels that they're in a place where God has turned his back on them, I invite you, call on the name of the Lord today. Reach out to God, not proudly, not with anger. I mean, if that's what you've got in your heart, show him whatever you've got in your heart. But come ready to receive love from him. Come ready to receive grace from him. Come ready to believe his better word for you. But also come ready to bow down. Don't make him force you to your knees. Come willingly to bow before him. Let's do that in prayer right now. Lord, we offer up our lives to you. And today we offer up to you the things that seem broken, backwards, confounded, confused, the places where there seems to be lack, the places where we seem to be failing, maybe places where we've really done the wrong thing, said the wrong word, held the wrong thought, followed the wrong motive. And we want to confess that to you right now. We want to release that to you right now. Maybe there's a place where we've experienced loss, and it's not anything that we've done wrong, but there, there's a hardness in our heart because we're struggling to feel your love in the face of such loss. We're struggling to trust you when we know that you allow that kind of loss. And we, we don't want your glory to turn away from us, Lord, and we don't want to turn away from you, but we feel like there's a distance between us, and we're asking you to come close to us right now. We're asking you to soften our hearts, to, to take our sorrow and give us joy, beauty for the ashes. There's an abundance of words, but I sense the Lord saying simply this, trust me, worship me, lean on me. I will not forsake you if you turn from me, you will encounter sorrow. But if you turn towards me, you will receive hope. And even in your sorrow, you will have joy. And even in your death, you will have life. My name is Jesus, says the Lord. I come to save you and to deliver you from all evil and into a good and pleasant place. In this world, you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. So trust me. Follow me. Serve me. And I will shine all my glory on you, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Salamat po, Panginoon. We believe you, we love you, and we entrust ourselves to you today. Amen.